The Graduate Center of the City University of New York presents Academically Speaking, an audio mini-series about the dissertation process, from planning and writing all the way to the defense, as told by Graduate Center students and faculty. This episode, we're joined by student Julie Hecht from Psychology and her advisor, Diana Rees. Uh, my name is Julie Hecht, and I am an, a PhD student in the Animal Behavior and Comparative Psychology training area here at the Graduate Center CUNY. And um, I'm a fourth year, and I'm hopefully moving to my candidacy phase shortly. I'm Diana Reese. I'm a professor in the Department of Psychology at Hunter College. I'm both a cognitive psychologist and a marine mammal scientist, and I have doctoral students at the Graduate Center. Much of the work that I've done has focused on dolphins, particularly bottlenose dolphins, the flipper variety. I've also spent time looking at uh, the mental lives of elephants. We've looked at the ability of these dolphins and elephants to recognize themselves in mirrors, something we used to think was uniquely human. We've also tried to study their communication. How do they communicate? I'm very involved in decoding dolphin communication, which is not an easy thing. Um, so, but And working with Julie's been really uh, a pleasure for me for many reasons. Aside from the fact that she's a wonderful student, she's 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 look at facing this challenge of trying to understand cat cognition. Even though we've been surrounded by cats and dogs our lives, these animals haven't been as studied as many other animals. And uh, there's so many adorable YouTubes of cats on you know out there, and people are interpreting them certain ways. Julie's really diving in to really get into the science of it. What are they really doing? What are they thinking rather than what we think they're thinking? So this is a great pleasure for me to be working with her. And what makes me very excited that I get to partner up with Diana is that she has a long history of innovative projects. She is incredibly um, interactive with the public, uh, both in terms of her outreach, but also in terms of considering animal welfare. So for me, it's a wonderful opportunity to team up with somebody who has such a strong uh, base in the cognitive sciences so we can have the tools to ask those questions, but then make it applied and have it relevant to people all around the world. I think that's one of the pleasures uh, in as a professor and working with other students because again we come together and we create these teams and they really are teams you know one moment you're the professor then you're the student the same thing with the student and I think it's that kind of exchange I mean Julie and I are collaborators in every sense of the word but then we, we sort of I mentor her she mentors me in different ways because we're bringing different things to the table but there's an alignment there that really works and it's very exciting. What you learn about uh, joining up with a team is it's very important that somebody is familiar with a wide variety of methodologies with Diana is she's been involved in a lot of different questions and the species is certainly a part of the question that you can investigate um, and explore together but it's not um, a problem it's if anything maybe a boon if she uh, has not been doing this we can both come at it from fresh eyes explore the literature together um, explore the behaviors together So I am generally interested in the, the field of animal behavior, so why and how animals do what they do, but specifically I'm interested in companion animals, so the animals that live in our homes that we interact with on a daily basis possibly, and when we look, we see that there's actually a lot more that we don't understand about them than what we do understand about them. 
Um, with cats, what's interesting about them is they've undergone uh, a domestication period much shorter than with dogs. Some people even question if they fulfill all the criteria for domestication. Um, and that being said, they live with us and we interact with them as cats and dogs. We, we glump them or clump them into this category. And so my approach um, as, a, as, a, as a researcher will be to not go into people's homes, to not enter their novels, not enter their space, um, but to essentially create an online portal where people can share information with, our, with us about their cats uh, using video and some questionnaires and I don't have to interrupt their social structure and they can share information with us, uh, which we can then peer into from our lab. I think this is an incredibly innovative approach that Julie's using and that she's devised to really get public involved in this, this kind of citizen science, because not only can we observe the interactions between pet owners and their pets where we're not being disruptive, but we engage the public, we get out, we get people involved in the process of science, which is so important. And it's particularly important now um, when we have to make decisions, there are all sorts of political decisions being made, there are animal welfare decisions being made, and the more we can get the public engaged in the process of science, in our learning more about these animals, whether they're cats, dogs, dolphins, elephants, we can help drive better policy decisions. So I see this as just a win-win for the animals and for our science. Citizen science is a long-standing tradition. Um, it's conducted in a lot of different ways. It's public engagement in the scientific process, period. And how that looks can mean, can, it can take a lot of different forms. When you're talking about animal behavior, it's very useful to have behavior to look at. And so this uh, creating an interface or a portal where people can share uh, videos with us is, is in some ways um, an, a novel methodology. It's, it, ha it certainly has been done before. Um, people very often will look at YouTube for inspiration um, or to collect data, but I'm also teamed up with the New Media Lab here at CUNY and working with them to create a website and uh, to create that portal. Um, and without them, it would have been much more difficult. So I'm very lucky that I was able to team up with the new Media Lab. I want to just introduce one other idea about this idea of anthropomorphism. And by anthropomorphism, I mean attributing human characteristics to non-humans, okay? Because when we think about watching people with their animals, and I'm guilty of this like everybody else is, you know, we can't help being anthropomorphic. We, these are animals that are close to us. Many people sit there and talk for their animals. They give them little voices like they're hearing them. And I've, I've done that. I'm guilty of that as well. But the other flip side of it is, is ref there's a dangerous flip side to that too, because we're all warned not to be anthropomorphic. But if we fail to ever allow animals to share any of the characteristics that we have, just imagine how little we'll see of what may be the truth about their behavior. So we have to find that fine line of looking at what exists and finding a rich set of methodologies to allow us to say, what do these animals show? Many years ago, I meant, as I mentioned before, many years ago we did studies showing that humans are not alone in recognizing themselves in mirrors. We used to say this was just our domain. It, it, was, it marked us you know, unique, as unique creatures on the planet. 
If we didn't acknowledge that other species might also have these characteristics, we would have failed to investigate this. And now we know that chimpanzees, the rest of the great apes, dolphins, elephants, magpies share with us this ability. This is not anthropomorphizing. This is based on our science. So I'm just excited to see what we learn about cats and, and this work that we're doing together, I think. Hopefully we'll illuminate more of that. And Julie said, well, we, I don't think we should necessarily bring the cats out of their houses because that's where they're comfortable. It could really affect their behavior. Let's study them in, in place and in situ, so to speak, um, rather than ex situ, taking them out of their habitat. And I think that was brilliant. And I think we're going to learn a great deal with that insight. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, there is, there's certainly a growing number of papers on cat cognition, which are, which is actually making me so excited because I get to reach out to other colleagues at other institutions and see how they're conducting their methodology. And in some cases, depending on the question, it can be totally appropriate to bring a cat into a novel environment and for the cat to be comfortable and to perform. Um, but again, you're only getting cats that are comfortable going in a carrier, going to a novel environment. So you're getting a subset of the population, uh, which essentially we could say about my studies with dogs. I'm getting a subset of the population who's comfortable coming into a novel space, or at least certainly meeting a novel person and not biting me. You know, they're playing along with my game. And so with cats, what I'm excited to see is if we leave them in their own environment, are we going to get a wider range of the cat? as opposed to just the affable, friendly cat. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a pretty cool idea that you can, depending on your question, going to a new place can be very appropriate, but depending on a different question, it might not be appropriate. So we get to have all these different methodologies and choose which one works best for us. Um, so I think for students who are trying to find a mentor, a good way to start is looking up what people do, what their research areas are, and then setting an appointment and going in and talking to the person. Because I think finding someone who you can feel comfortable with, who you have a rapport with, even if it's not exactly what you want to do, if it's work that interests you and you like that person and feel like you could work with that person, that's often, and that's often a really good person to be working with. It doesn't always have to match your research interests exactly. When I was in graduate school, uh, this was back at Temple University in Philadelphia, I was in a speech and communication science department and it was right adjacent to a psychology department and I really liked this person I met who was a professor um, who studied human speech perception and I and didn't have any background in animal behavior and I went to study with that person and it turned out it was the right person. I learned a lot about bioacoustics and how we study sounds and symbolic behavior and communication and then I worked with other people who focused on dolphin communication and, and, and different aspects of behavior. I think you just have to find that one person who's gonna really be in sync with you and will be supportive. I think a person that's supportive is really critical. I would agree with that 100% and also that um, we might think we have an idea that really interests us, but we probably have lots of ideas. We're in science because we have lots of questions. And so finding somebody who you like their approach, I like the innovative approach that Diana has consistently brought to her work. I'm so happy that she's interested and acting on animal welfare. Uh, that's incredibly important in our field. And so to be able to work with somebody that has this, this history 
And this action is really exciting. And uh, I think the advice I would give is show up, you know, make that appointment and don't be stuck in one way because you're flexible probably. And so is probably your mentor. You're in science for a reason. This has been Academically Speaking, presented by the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Subscribe on iTunes, follow us on SoundCloud, and visit us on the web at gc.cuny.edu slash podcast.